You know, it really feels like topics on this show fall into two big categories. Weird and sad? Yeah. And I think it's clear that from today's episode title, you can probably guess that this falls into the sad category. On December 24th, 1945, a fire destroyed the Sauter home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The Christmas Eve fire was a disaster. At the time, the house was occupied by George Sodder, his wife Jenny, and nine of their ten children. During the fire, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped unharmed. The bodies of the other five were never found, and the Sodders believed that the missing children had survived. This is not good. I don't. I'm not. I'm not digging this. Anyway, the Sodders never rebuilt the house. Instead, they converted the site into a memorial garden for their lost children. In the 1950s, they put up a billboard at the site along State Route 16 with pictures of the five children, offering a reward for information that would bring closure to the case. It remained up until shortly after Jenny Sodder's death in the late 1980s. All right, let's back up a little bit to try and understand why this story, whilst being tragic, is also peculiar and weirdly significant. That works for me. George Sodder was born in Italy in 1895 and immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 13, along with his older brother, who returned home after being cleared to enter the country. George never talked about why he left Italy and eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania before moving to West Virginia as a train driver. He went on to start a trucking company hauling fill dirt and coal. Jenny Cipriani, a storekeeper's daughter who had also come to the U.S. from Italy in her childhood, became his wife. The couple settled outside nearby Fayetteville, which had a large population of Italian immigrants in a two-story timber frame house two miles north of the town. In 1923, they had the first of their ten children. George's business prospered, and they became, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around, in the words of one local official. George had strong opinions about many subjects and was not shy about expressing them, sometimes alienating people around him. His outspoken opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini had led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. He would have loved Twitter. If only it was around. Even after Mussolini was deposed and executed, George continued to publicly criticize the leader. This is when things get weird. In October 1945, a visiting life insurance salesman, after being rebuffed by George, warned him that his house would, quote, go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Going on to mention the dirty remarks he had been making about Mussolini. Another visitor to the house, who said he was seeking work in the area, took the occasion to go around to the back and warn George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday, he said. George was puzzled by the observation, since he had just had the house rewired when an electric stove was installed, and the local electric company signed off on all of the work. In the weeks before Christmas that year, his older sons had also noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town. Its occupants tended to watch the younger Sodder children as they returned from school. So that brings us to the fire on Christmas Eve. Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, 12, Jenny, 8, and Betty, who was 5, with new toys that she bought them there as gifts. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past what had been their usual bedtime on that Christmas Eve. Classic parent move. Mm -hmm. At 10 p.m., Jenny told them they could stay up a little bit later as long as the two oldest boys were still awake. Jenny then went to bed joining her husband, the two oldest boys, John, 23, and George, Jr., who was 16, and the younger, Sylvia, who was two years old, were already asleep. The telephone rang at 1230 in the morning. Jenny woke and went downstairs to answer it. 
It was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was not familiar with, and she could hear like a party, laughter, and glasses in the background. She told the caller she had reached the wrong number and went back to bed. And as she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and curtains not drawn, two of the things that the children would normally take care of when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed that the other children who had stayed up later had gone back up to the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and returned to bed. Then at 1am, Jenny was awakened again by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang, accompanied by a rolling noise. After another half hour, she woke up again, smelling smoke. When she got up, she found that the room George used as an office was on fire. She woke him and started waking up the oldest two sons. Both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, and the two older boys, escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs but heard no response. They could not get up to there as the stairway was already in flames. John Sauter said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings sleeping there, although he later changed his story to say that he only called up there and had not actually seen them. Calling for help proved difficult. The phone didn't work, so Marion ran to a neighbor's to call the fire department. A driver on the nearby road had seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. They were unsuccessful as well because they could not reach an operator. George and the two oldest sons attempted to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but the ladder was not in its usual spot, where it would usually rest against the house, and it could also not be found anywhere within the nearby vicinity. He then tried to pull both of his work trucks he used up to the house and climb up to the attic window atop them, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly the previous day. The six sodders who had escaped watched the house burn down and collapse over 45 minutes, assuming the other five children were inside and perished from the blaze. The fire department was low on manpower due to impact of the war and did not respond until later that morning. The firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, could do little but look through the ashes that were left in the Sodders' basement. By 10 a.m., they had not found any bones, as might be expected if the other children had been inside the house. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. We're going to come back to those in a moment. Either way, the search was probably cursory at best. That's terrible. This is, yeah, this is not, this is not, not good. The fire chief, a man named F.J. Morris, told George Sauter to leave the site undisturbed so the state fire marshal could come conduct a more thorough investigation. But after four days, he and his wife could not bear the site anymore, so George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden for their lost children. The local coroner convened an inquest the next day, which held that the fire was an accident caused by, quote, faulty wiring. Now get this. Among the jurors was the man who had threatened George Sauter that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in retribution for political remarks. I'm not sure how this is allowed. It, it, it seems super weird that this guy would be on the jury after that. Very weird. After the funerals, the Sodders began to question the disaster. George questioned the findings that the fire was caused by an electrical problem as the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages. So, like, calling back to the fuse boxes, right, they're not a problem. If the lights are on, it should, couldn't have been the fuse boxes. In theory. Exactly. They then found the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away from the property. More worryingly, a telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire as they initially thought. Remember, they couldn't make a call out. 
but the line had been cut by someone who was willing to climb 14 feet up a telephone pole. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and subsequently arrested. He did admit to the theft of these two objects and claimed that he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. No record identifying this man exists today, nor any real commentary about why he wouldn't have cut any utility lines to the solder house while stealing the block and tackle. This has simply never been explained. Jenny said in 1968 that if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with the other children, would never have been able to make it out of the house due to the lights being out. But as already noted, the lights were on. Jenny Sodder also had trouble accepting that all traces of the children's bodies had been completely burned in the fire. She conducted some experiments of her own, burning small piles of animal bones to see if they could be completely consumed by flame. None of them ever were. She contacted an employee of a local crematorium who told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, far longer and far hotter than a house fire could ever be. The truck's failure to start was also considered. George Sodder believed that they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle, cutting the phone line as well. But others later believed that he simply could have flooded the engines in his haste to pull them up to the burning house because of the panic that he was in. Some accounts have suggested that that wrong number phone call to the Sodder house may have been somehow connected to the fire and disappearance of the children. However, investigators later located the woman who had made the call, and she confirmed that it was simply a wrong number on her part. So that seems just to be a coincidence. The driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. This could have been what was heard on the roof of the house before the fire woke the family. Other witnesses claim to have seen the children after the house went up in flames. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of them peering out of a passenger car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop outside town on the way to Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning. The Sodders hired a private investigator by the name of C.C. Tinsley, who was the one who discovered that the insurance salesman had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident. Tinsley also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his reports to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris, the fire chief, had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. Tinsley and the Sodders confronted Morris, who helped them dig it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director, who after examining it told them it was in reality a beef liver. Morris later admitted he placed it there in the hope that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. After this, George grew desperate. He wrote the FBI multiple times, petitioning them to open a kidnapping investigation. In August 1949, George was able to persuade a Washington, D.C. pathologist to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. After a very thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae from a single individual. Those bones were probably from someone older than the parish children, and as they were not accompanied by any others, it was concluded that the vertebrae had indeed most likely come from the dirt that Sauter had bulldozed 
over the site. George soon began traveling around the nation, following leads. He traveled to Charleston to meet an innkeeper who reported seeing the children, along with four Italian-speaking adults. A woman in St. Louis claimed Martha was being held in a convent there. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia. And when George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative had approved the children were his own before George was satisfied. I suppose none of these leads led to anything concrete. Uh, sadly, they did not. In 1967, Sodder went to the Houston area to investigate yet another tip. A woman there had written to the family, saying that Louis Sodder had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. Police there were able to help Sodder find the two men she had indicated, but they denied to being the missing sons. Another letter the family received that year brought the Sodders what they believed to be the most credible evidence that Lewis was still alive. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her, postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man around 30 years of age with features that strongly resembled her son's, who would have been in his 30s had he survived. George died in 1969, but his family continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. The surviving Sauter children, joined by their own kids, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with older residents in the area, have theorized, this is where it gets, we come back to the, the, the theory a little bit, that the mafia was trying to extort money from George Sauter and that the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would be safe if they left the house. As of 2015, Sylvia Sodder Paxton, the youngest in the family, is the only one still alive of the surviving children who were in the house on the night of the fire, which says is her earliest memory. There's a lot to think about this, right? I, I kind of come around to thinking that it's a family obviously stricken by grief. Remains weren't found that allowed this, this hope to linger, but uh, I think at the end of the day, it's just a really sad story about a family who had trouble letting go. Yeah, and what I don't understand about this is why if the remaining Sodder children had actually escaped, why they would never have come forward themselves to find the family. Like, it's a really peculiar and intriguing situation. Like, I can see why this has its own Wikipedia article, right? Because there's there's all this intrigue in it and conspiracy and stuff like that. But it is such a weird case in that there is no real concrete evidence for four human beings right? Like, where were their bodies? It really is very weird. So thank you to Seth for sending in our topic this week. If you want to learn more about it, there are some links on our show notes page this week. That is relay.fm slash ungeniust slash 28. You can get in touch with us there. You can send us an email. You can hit us up on Twitter. The show is at ungeniust. Mike is there as I-M-Y-K-E. And you can find me there as I-S-M-H. All of our topics come from listeners. Uh, the list is just full of wild stuff, and uh, it's always fun to, to learn about new things with you, Mike. So until our next weird and vaguely upsetting article, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.